Hello, I'm Kenza, and this is the Finding Space podcast. Welcome back to the Finding Space podcast. Today, we take a break from Series 3 for a special episode with elite cyclocross rider Raylin Nass. I talked with Raylin about her time as a college basketball player, her career as a scientist, and how she transitioned to a professional cyclist and helped form the Steve Tilford Foundation racing team. We also hear from teammates Stephen Hyde and Joe Schmaltz about the foundation and what Steve Tilford meant to the cycling community. Enjoy! I literally grew up with a basketball in my crib. And my dad grew up in Kansas, and so he was a huge Kansas basketball fan. And so I naturally had a KU onesie on and basketball in the crib. And it was day one, third grade, co-ed basketball, um, just schooling the boys, you know, 16 points and co-ed ball. So it was, I mean, I can't even envision a part of my life where I, you know, wasn't involved in sport. When did you decide, I want to stick with this through university? That's a really good question, because there was a point in my life where I considered running in college, but I just didn't love it. It wasn't as fun as, you know, I got excited to go to basketball practice after school versus running. I was like, oh my gosh, I got to go run six miles after school, like dreading it and wanting to go hide in the bushes during like mile repeats, you know, but basketball was something that was always just I looked forward to that part of my day and having a team around you and being a part of a team was just something that I just loved and I think also being able to get scholarship and have that fund you know my fund my school was really important as well and once I was in it I just in college and playing it was just part of you know, the day-to-day routine. And there was a point where I was starting to get tired of it. And my senior year, we played all the way through the national tournament. And I was just, you know, once that final game was happened, I was just ready to take a, a long break from basketball. And I didn't touch a basketball again for a couple of years, actually, but enjoyed the process all the way through. You were captain in your last year or? And I feel like it was my sophomore through my senior year but for sure my junior and senior year. And what what was it what did it take to be, you know, captain of a college basketball team is a big deal. You know, what do you think it was something, you know, was that something that the coach saw in you in terms of a mindset, how you approached the team, how you talked to the team or was it we you know were you nuts and bolts best player on the court sort of thing? What, what I would definitely wouldn't say I was nuts and bolts the best player on the court, but I was definitely the quote-unquote floor general for most of my college career being the point guard, and I think a lot of that comes with the position that I was playing and just kind of like running the plays. But I also think it was just my work ethic day in and day out. You know, I was I always showed up. I'm, I'm not a morning person, but I would get to wait at 5.30 because I knew the team, team relied on me, and I was always – you know, kind of the hype woman of the team in addition to, you know, most of the time having the most minutes, but I just always genuinely cared about my team and everybody around me, um, playing to their best potential. And as a point guard, you know, I'm the one passing the ball and running the plays, but I, I genuinely was just stoked whenever, you know, a teammate of mine would, you know, score over 20 points and we'd win a game, you know, like that was, so maybe that's what the coaches saw and they knew that. And that's kind of why, um, you know, I could be a reliable asset to the team outside of just the coaches. Do you think being in that position made you a better player? Is it something that you thrived on? Oh, for sure. But it's what's interesting is my senior year, I actually moved away to a shooting guard. So I got to have like a little bit more fun. It was a little less pressure off of me being the one kind of running the show day to day. But then the coach knew that we had, they had two floor generals on the court at at all times. But I do think that it made me a better player. And I also think that it just in general um, made me a better person. And I, you know, it almost forced me into a leadership position constantly. And I, point guard was the position that I played ever since I started playing basketball. So I was just naturally placed into this leadership role 
you know, from fifth grade on. Playing at an elite level at the college years, at those ages, but you're also expected to go and get a degree. Mm -hmm. And you also, you know, you weren't going and getting just some, you know, just past degree that meant you could play. You were pushing yourself at university and on the court. Was that a struggle for you? Did the playing the basketball help in any way? You know, how was that whole process for you? I almost feel like, I mean, and I know a lot of college athletes do struggle with this, but I think team sports in general and playing in college, it forces you, you know, to be really disciplined and have extremely good time management. And I think if of all of the things that I would take away from me playing college basketball, apart from like the team camaraderie and that whole aspect would be, I mean, I was able to multitask, you know, like going to classes in the morning Well, I'd have weights, then I'd take a nap, then I would go to class and then I would take another nap sometimes. And then I would do some homework and then I would have another class and then I would have a three hour practice. And it was like just constant and then games on the weekend. So it's almost like you're always playing catch up. Um, so it just really forced you to be disciplined and just, like I said, the time management skill skill set that I think I acquired from juggling multiple sports, even through my high school career. And also, you know, studying science, I think really helped mold me into the person that I am today. When you're playing college sport, it's expected that you are basically an elite pro athlete. I mean, there's obviously huge debates around whether college athletes should be being paid and, and that sort of stuff. But just in terms of the time that you put in, it's not far off what an elite athlete would be doing once they leave college. Oh, for sure. That's, I mean, 100% spot on. And I never really thought of it that way until you honestly just said that right now. I mean, of course, the whole NCAA, you know, ban on letting athletes um, get money or get paid for jersey sales or any of that stuff. I mean, it's accurate. These athletes are literally, it is a full-time job on top of then doing classes. And then on top of your 18 years old and you have to also be, you know, you can't get caught partying or doing something, you know, that doesn't quote unquote look proper. Um, but you're, you're a kid, essentially. You're still maturing and you're learning all these life lessons on top of basically having two full-time jobs, being a student and also an athlete. It is fascinating to hear the sort of pressure that is put on these and the expectation um, that these, yeah, kids are meant to have and meant to execute and be sort of successful for universities across the country. And yet not much is... On top of you have to make good grades and you have to show up to class. Otherwise you can't, you can't suit up for your game. Which, and it it goes back to my point on it, really teaches you to be disciplined and like be, have really good time management skills on top of just the team camaraderie. So really, I believe helped mold me into the person that I am. So you left with a science degree and you were, you know, proud of the basketball career you'd had. Yeah. Did you, at that point... I'm guessing you were thinking about your science career rather than an elite athlete career. Yeah, like my working professional career. So talk us through that sort of transition from leaving college and going into your sort of professional working career. What what were you thinking it, at that point? It was almost straight away. And I kind of, it was like senior year. You're like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm about to actually go into the real world. What am I going to do? I don't know. You know, and then I played with the idea of going to chiropractic chiropractic school or, you know, do I go to med school? Um, The beauty about having a biology and chem and business degree was that I could ultimately do whatever I wanted with that. And I was, I would guess, you know, playing sport, I was just so consumed with basketball and just making sure I got good grades. And then I'm like, oh, I'll figure it out. But in a lot of, you know, students who don't play sports, they have like a plan like from the get go where they figure it out within their first two years. But I graduated and I'm like, what do I what what do I do? So I thought about going to med school for for a while and um, studied, 
you know, to test into that and just didn't feel like that was my pull and just started applying to jobs and ended up working in microbiology. And then from there, just meeting um, a woman who had faith in, in me as coming on board as a scientist, um, even though it was kind of beyond my level. And that there, there I was. Then I was a full-on scientist for six years. And do you think having that, were there things that you took from, even though physically, you know, you're not turning up every day and basketball wasn't like, a part or elite sport wasn't a part of your life in terms of a science career at that point but were there things that you took from that elite sport college career sort of into your working career oh for sure and it i think the the biggest thing was the team camaraderie and being a part of a team because i was a part of a team in the lab And that's kind of what my boss at the time, she really saw in me was that she knew I could gel and fit perfectly in her squad and she could mold me into the scientist that she wanted me to be. But once I got into that team and that group and just kind of like everybody's extremely different in the science world. And that was what was fun because we did have to work together. And I think that's probably the biggest takeaway was the teamwork aspect. As a scientist for you know six years, but you came back to sport before you finished your career. At what point did you come? Were you always training since you left? You know, were you running? What were you doing? How were you keeping, you know, just fit at the time of leaving college and? Well, that is the one thing. And it's like, you stop playing sport and a lot of people are just like, Whew, I'm done. You know, like I'm done playing sport. Like I'll maybe go to the gym a couple of times, but I was like used to working out three times a day, also studying. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what do I do with all of this energy? Like I want to be doing something. And I had ran back in high school, um, in addition to playing basketball. And I kind of came back to that. And I had also done a, an iron kids triathlon back when I was in seventh grade. And I was like, that was really fun. I had swam competitively up until high school. And I was like, I should do a triathlon again. And it kind of, I'm like, I had an old road bike. It was like a 49 centimeter that my dad had bought me for that Iron Kids triathlon. So I had a bike. I was like, let's do this thing. Like, this will be fun, you know? And I didn't have a coach or anything. I just kind of like read a bunch of magazine articles on like how to properly train, you know? And so it was triathlon, honestly. And it was probably within maybe six months of me graduating that I started, you know, I really got into like strength training and then just triathlon almost, almost immediately. So the same way that you would leave the ball on the court for a summer, you basically had an extended summer and then you were ready right on it to get back. Literally. And when you started doing that, those triathlons did you bring that same mindset to it obviously you're straight away as you've said there you're looking to improve straight away Mm -hmm. you know are you turning up to these things as like you know this is fun it's good to keep busy while I'm working or were you at that point thinking I want to be a you know get to an elite level (laughs) Uh, this is funny all my friends if they listen to this are gonna laugh because it was almost like Yes, of course. Like I did one triathlon and I, I think it was like a second in my age group or something. I'm like, oh my gosh, what if I actually trained? Like, what if I got a really good bike? And like, what <laughs> if I really got into this? Like, oh, I should, you know? And so it was almost after my first race, I'm like, I'm going all in with this. And I think to go back to your point on the transition from playing college basketball into a professional career, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, I almost, at the same time I got, on with you know my microbiology job I started triathlon so I was still having three workouts a day going to work during the middle of the day you know like so it was almost still the identical situation I almost never had a full complete change do you think not that that's naive to think that but having that sort of just blind positivity towards it yeah kind of was a real strength for you in terms of it just meant you kept pushing yourself and Whereas most people, you know, I would probably go out, do a triathlon and then think, 
well, that's really hard. <laughs> I'm not very good at that. And unless I abs- absolutely loved it, I probably either wouldn't do it again or, you know, most people would just think, God, those pros are really good. They just instantly think there's a divide. And obviously you'd come from a a higher level of sport anyway. Mm -hmm. But do you think that sort of, yeah, that blind positivity mainly is like you rock up new sport and you're like, I'm going all in was really a strength for you to transition to now a cyclist. Oh, for sure. And I am, I am super naive probably a lot of the times, but I, I do have my blinders on of that. And I'm like, I'm going to work as hard as I can because I know I can be at that level and I'm going to just do whatever it takes until I get to that level. Um, and why do I want to do that? I don't really know. I think I'm just, I was born really competitive and I just want to always push myself to the, you know, as hard and as far as I possibly can. What made you Hmm. sort of a triathlon pun here transition from (laughs) the triathlon Mm. to cycling um that was a good pun honestly I dreaded swimming and I I loved swimming when I was growing up but it was having to drive to a pool the water was cold you had to get your hair wet I have really long hair you know it was like all of these like things that I would just get annoyed about and I I also am a baby when it comes to cold water And then the other part of triathlon that I just wasn't keen on was the start. And it's a mass start in the water. And then you just have like hundreds of women and you just dive into the water and then you're all going around a buoy and it is vicious in the water. And I just, even playing basketball and that's a contact sport, I was not an aggressive player in that way. And I think that whole, um, and how aggressive it got on the water, it just really turned me off to it. I didn't like getting kicked in the head, you know, and some people just love that part of the sport. And I was just like, why am I doing this? I'm not even having fun. Like this, it was to a point where I was dreading it. I'm like, I need to stop. And someone had suggested cyclocross. They're like, oh, you need to get better on the bike. You should do this because it's in the off season. And I'm like, what is cyclocross? And of course I go all in and I buy a bike before my first race even and a bike that would work for it and instantly clicked i'm like this is fun this is so much fun you you have more than just putting out power which is what i'd seen from road cycling and like the few road races that i had done i'm like this is kind of not not to down road cycling but it was boring to me a bit and then with cyclocross there's just so many other elements to it and it was just like oh my gosh, this is it. Like, this is what I want to do. When you sort of joined, when you got into cyclocross, how did you then just progress? Were you, did you have a coach at some point? Did they tell you, actually, you know, you're putting out some good numbers here. I think you could really go for this. Or were you just rocking up to races and getting really good results? Like, how did you go from, you know, going to your first cyclocross race to working as a scientist and competing in Europe? Well, when I first started cyclocross, it was just like a little, like some local stuff, kind of like getting my toes wet. And then I'm like, same thing with the triathlon. I'm like, oh my gosh, what if I got a coach and I actually took this seriously? And so I had gotten a coach and it wasn't one of those things where he was like, Oh my gosh, your numbers are great. You know, you're going to be so good at this sport. And it was just kind of like showing up to my first UCI race and like doing pretty decent and actually getting some UCI points on my first year ever racing elite level. And I think I didn't need somebody validating me based on my numbers. It was just like, I saw the potential myself and I knew I'm like, I know I can be great at this if I just work really hard. So it was kind of, yeah, just showing up and just being like, wow, okay, I'm, I could be pretty decent at this. So obviously when you walk away from university and your basketball career, you went straight back into a full-time job and attempted to become a professional triathlete. And then you walked away from triathlon and cyclocross and you still had your full-time science career and then you walked away from your science job 
and you took on setting up a multi-surface cycling team with also working a few other jobs, I believe, <laughs> and also being an elite cyclist. So to be fair, actually when I was a scientist and doing the cyclocross endeavors, I was also side hustling on trying to put together a team and put together sponsors, hence the Map Mini program that I had in 2019 while I still was a scientist. You know, so I'm like in my downtime, if I have half an hour and I've gotten all my work done or I'm wait, waiting on a lab test to run, I, you know, I put together a sponsor pitch deck or something, you know, so I was constantly hustling in that regard. So it wasn't like I quit my job and then I was like, okay, here I go. I can go and try and form a team now. It, all of that was happening while I was still working full time and training full time. So you get to the point where you obviously had, you were doing all of this while you were, as you say, a scientist, you brought on some, you know, big sponsors and you put together a pretty impressive sort of setup while still working. And then you left and you were connected essentially, well, the, you were connected with the, I guess, the forming of this Steve Tilford Foundation. Correct. Um, and that came to be the lead sponsor of the team. Steve Tilford Foundation. How, I guess, how is that for you? Like going through that and sort of, not only did you sort of, you didn't just walk away from your job and go into just trying to be a privateer athlete. You know, you you were trying to set up this team. You had two other amazing, you know, elite athletes come and join you, Joe Smoltz and Stephen Hyde. It sort of all come together. And obviously, as you say, we haven't got to a first full season yet. So right. in terms of, racing and results we haven't been able to enjoy that but how has that been sort of being part of the formation of you know a very impressive team setup right well you know um one of the co-founders of the steve tilford foundation matt gilhausen it was kind of that moment that he believed in also the thought of having an elite program that could spearhead the marketing around the Steve Tilford Foundation. And it was months and months and months, this kind of in the works to where it was to a point where finally we had agreed, you know, that I could come on and actually have a job role and be paid. And that was the instant like, okay, I am, I am done working in a, in the science field. This is my time to like del like fully dive into what I am passionate about. And I guess that's So maybe for those that don't know much about Steve Tilford in terms of his career and then his, you know, maybe even a little bit about the, you know, the tragedy of his passing, but then also what the Steve Tilford Foundation is and what its agenda is, you know, what, what is it trying to achieve? So Steve Tilford is an absolute legend and especially in the state of Kansas, that's where he's from. Hence why I now live in Lawrence, Kansas and where the foundation's kind of headquartered out of. And he had made such an impact in the cycling community throughout the country and even worldwide, actually, um, that w his passing was so tragic because he was still racing at a high level, really, when he passed, even though he was a master's athlete, he was crushing it in the cycling scene still. I mean, he would go to Unbound, he would go to Belgian Waffle Ride, he would do all of these big races still. And so when he passed, it was just it rocked a lot of people's worlds. Um, and so they wanted to make a foundation in his name to keep Steve Tilford's passion for cycling alive. And ultimately the foundation's number one goal is that is to keep his passion for cycling alive. And I think 
we're obviously a startup foundation. We've, st- we started up alongside the team launching in November of 2020. And so it's mentorship driven, it's development driven, but it's also community driven. And it's, it goes beyond just development with, you know, what seems as though the cycling, especially cyclocross, um, race is starting to kind of fall off and cycling events in general. And we really want to be a foundation that can kind of help, help race promoters, help these events that are already standing, keep them strong, keep them thriving. So that way these development, you know, developmental athletes have a home and they were a place they can go and race without the events. What, what's the point of growing up training and, you know, um, so really we're still, we're listening, we're hearing what people need, what, where can we fit exactly? We know obviously the few directions that that I just mentioned that we want to go, but we're an evolving brand new foundation that just genuinely wants to help the cycling community stay alive here in the United States. Um, so that's, what's kind of exciting about the whole thing is it, it is brand new, but it's also a stressful thing that it's brand new because everyone's like, what are you guys doing? And also to launch in a COVID year. So, you know, we're still figuring that out a bit, but we have a lot of really good, great plans and um, just kind of waiting to kick that off. And also, I guess one of the key parts of it, you know, in the long run, you've obviously got ambitions to, you know, support young riders, support uh, races, you know, really it's clear that racing was a fundamental part of Steve Tilford's like career and his personality in terms of, and I know that might be sort of seem like an obvious thing to say in terms of he was an elite athlete, but from, you know, someone that's sort of learning about him sadly after he passed away, it seems like just racing was everything to him being in that competitive environment literally and joe had has the best quote that tilford would always say and it's race as much as possible and that's just what he did he would turn up to every local race national level race uci level race he did it all so maybe moving to the racing for a purpose can you tell me what racing for a purpose means for you my whole thing with with racing, and it's kind of to a point where I'm like, why am I doing this? Why am I sacrificing, you know, missing friends' weddings or missing birthday parties or, you know, not going to certain concerts or like living out my 20s and like being able to go out and do things and s- sacrificing family time all for for what? To go to these races, it's like, why, why does that matter so much to me? And I think, you know, it's very fleeting to win a race or to like have a really good result and you have that feeling after the race, but then almost the race is over and you're like, okay, next thing. And it's kind of like I've fallen into a dream scenario now with the Steve Tilford Foundation being that, yes, it will still have those fleeting like, winning happy moments but then once that's over and we then look on to the next thing where it's all for something that's more than yourself now so even if I have a terrible race or the whole season goes to shit essentially I can look back and just know and even when I have a bad race I'm like okay yes that was sucked but we're still out here getting the foundation name out and that's the bigger purpose around all of this is to be able to genuinely give back to the cycling community as a whole and also you have steve tilford his name is on our chest and so we're keeping his spirit alive so even if we have a bad race at the end of the day it's still a good day because there's so much more to it And so you're able to toe the line with something just beyond yourself and like having 
So it's just ultimately a bigger sense of fulfillment. And I think it's, instead of just being happy after each race weekend, you can be totally fulfilled at the end of the season because you're like, wow. Like, we're actually going to be making an impact here. And even on a really small scale, the fact that, and again, I'm saying this from someone who has been learning and hearing stories about Steve Tilford only recently, but he obviously connected with a huge amount of people, whether it was through his famous sort of blog posts or whether just through racing with, you know, across the country and meeting so many people, Mm -hmm. he was obviously a huge part of the American cycling culture and racing environment. Just that simple fact that you touched on the fact that his name is on your kit and will be racing around the country. Mm Mm-hmm for however long mm-hmm. that must be a big thing for those people who are connected to him and, mm-hmm. and who knew him yeah and i know like joe for example um joe was brought up actually under steve tilford and like through his mentorship and guidance and so joe is ultimately the most connected i never got to meet steve because um, i'm new to the whole cycling industry cycling game and Hyde always, he had mentioned that he, you know, read a lot of his blogs and was really con- felt a connection with him in that way. But for Joe to race Unbound, which was in Kansas, and that was our first team event was Unbound. And for him to go through the first checkpoint, and it was as soon as Joe entered that checkpoint, because he has Steve Tilford on his jersey, he got an exuberant amount of like cheering and everyone yelling, Tilford, Tilford, you know, like, and he, it brought tears to his eyes and it's bringing tears to my eyes just thinking about Joe getting teary-eyed, you know. And that's what it's about because you're pulling the community together to cheer for this, you know, like it's, yeah, ultimately you can bring people together for even a whole nother meaning beyond just watching it and enjoying the sport. It seems like you're really building a team where everyone really understands that why we're racing for a purpose and that can just be each other and making sure we're enjoying it and yes results might come maybe it will improve results but it's you know it's making sure whenever you come to the end of your cycling career you look back and you've learned a lot from it and Mm -hmm. you've gained a lot from it yeah that's exactly right i mean at the end of the day it's harder to remember who won the world championship four years ago. But if somebody has, makes an impact on you at a race, you have an interaction with someone or a high-level athlete, and they do something nice or they say something to you, they take time out of their day, their racing day, to have a genuine connection with you. And that's what Steve Tilford did. He made genuine connections with people at races. And all, out of all of the Steve stories that I've been hearing, and that's who people are going to remember four years down the road. Well, Stephen Hyde helped me here or Raylan Us helped me here or took time out of her day to do this. And it's building, you know, character and just being a good human being. And I think that's winning. At the end of the day, if you can cross the line, you have a good result. But at the end of the day, if you've made an impact on someone, a good impact, that's what it's all about. We are now going to hear two shorter chats with Stephen Hyde and finishing with Joe Schmaltz talking about mental health and sport and the legacy of Steve Tilford. Make sure you check out the team and the foundation to see how they grow over the coming years. So, so one thing that I really feel like uh, is a good driver for me within this program, and I think that it kind of like encapsulates the what our purposes is like one of our purposes is to be open-minded to the idea of not just being here for us, but if another team, um, another part of the community needs something like how, how can we use our resources and our, um, our, our manpower and our strengths to bolster theirs. 
I don't want to show up to a cross race and be like, we're the best team. This is what we do. Don't talk to us. Yeah. You know, I, I want to, I, I want to talk to the athletes and I want to talk to, I want to talk to my competitors and I want to push them and I want to help them. And I want to, as a team, be there for other teams. You know, I don't want this to be an insular thing. I don't want to be like, oh, we're this brand X and we can't hang out and be seen with this other brand X. I want to break that. Um, And I think everyone else on the team does too. Like, we have, we work with really large companies. You know, we work with large brands. We work with small brands too. Um, And we talk about the outdoor industry as a very large industry, but I think if we look at the cycling industry and especially start drilling down on our like particular niche here it's a small world and i don't think there's room to be insular within that small world um i i think that what has always driven me into bike racing was like the open arms of the community and when you put up a big gate around it you know was it good fences make good neighbors like i i don't think so <laughs> i don't you Definitely. know I, I don't think just like toppling everybody all the time is is the way to do it so i, I don't know where i'm going with that exactly except for that i just want to uplift the, everyone around us no i think it's it's really interesting to hear you um sort of go through that trying to understand what racing for a purpose means to you and i think even as you say i guess having that conversation is also just the interesting part hearing you talk about it and what the team's trying to do and that process that you're going through do you think and it this is coming from someone that is learning more about steve tilford as as the man and the the racer sadly after his death you know i i didn't know him as a person um but it sounds like this was the sort of personality that he brought to the sport, whether it was through his blog that was famous, sometimes maybe infamous that, you know, he was, he was an outspoken character and he loved racing. He was at events. He seemed to impact a huge part of the cycling community. And he wasn't there just to be an insular person on his own and and race. Do you think that's one of the main things that, you have tried to continue as as sort of the Steve Tilford legacy um or are there other aspects of, of him and his legacy that you're trying to continue yeah I, you know I think about Steve a lot actually I, I I try to understand him posthumously as well right like I, I've had very little interaction with Steve and what I did have was really impactful and what I get is the stories on a lot of almost all of my background on him is the stories and the impact of his blog, et cetera. You know, like I read Steve's blog. I loved it. In fact, someone actually sent me, I stopped reading it at some point and someone sent me stuff he wrote about me and I cried. (laughs) Like I absolutely cried. You know, I saw that and I was just like, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe these worlds are colliding like this. Um, And the one thing that I'll say is that we have to take Steve as a person. The the legacy and the foundation is built around Steve, the person, not necessarily Steve, the bike racer. And if you only take it as Steve, the bike racer, then you only take the good parts of the, not the good parts. That's the wrong. That's the wrong word. The you only take the highlighted reel of Steve's life. And I think that, as a complicated person, Steve made impacts on a lot of people, one person at a time. You didn't see, the. Steve Tilford, freight train roll into town, handing out T-shirts patting everyone on the back on the stage there was a guy in a van who drove around the country to race bikes 
And at every single race he went to, somebody walked away from that with a story. You didn't see a huge program built around the bike safety rodeos. But Steve showed up and he did them. And you might have, you know, conjured up some volunteers, some help. Um, there was support there. None of it was unsupported. He gained popularity and support because people saw what he was doing as an individual. They saw that beyond bike racing, he was impressive as a bike racer. Bike racer. He was impressive. People saw him and were impressed by the things that he was doing because he did them on his own, because he did them with such grit, and he also wanted to share and teach what he was able to do. He wanted to simplify it for people, right? He wanted to show up and be like, oh, you don't actually have to have the best equipment in the world to do this. I, I, I think that's one of the things I admired about him. He was like, this works for me. I, it gets the job done. <laughs> I'm totally into that, you know? And as a sponsored athlete with like, you got to always be on the newest, latest, and greatest stuff and then talk about how good the newest and latest and greatest stuff is. It's really difficult not to say, like, well, actually, I loved 11-speed. I thought that was stuff that was great. You know, and we complained about it when it first came out. We were like, we love 10-speed, you know what I mean? And he's like, I'll always be on 9-speed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I think, uh, you know, um, and, and I think the impression that I got was, you know, from talking to all of his friends whom, you know, I'm now becoming close with, was he was like, hey, this works. Figure this out and then move on to other stuff. Like, don't worry about the latest and greatest stuff. Just get what works for you. Drive to the race and do it. You know, like the training, do the training that works for you. Do the equipment that works for you. But make it simple. Make it repeatable. You'll go a lot farther with it. And I think that... Again, the impact that he had was on the individual. He used, probably without even thinking about it, because that's when these things happen. You know, he used his life's work, which was becoming this, like, ultra-scrappy um, competitor to pay for him to travel around talking to people <laughs> like I, I don't think it was the oh I need money to go race bikes so that I can get more money to go race bikes I think it was uh I love racing bikes I also love helping and talking to people and if I win the bike race I get enough money to go to the next one to talk to people and help people <laughs> like that's such an interesting dynamic to really think about um So it gets back to this thing of like, as a team, how do we use our impact? It makes you really think about like, okay, well, if this one person can grow this massive following of people who, like at Lutzen, the year he, the last year he won Lutzen 99, which Raylan and I both won this year. Our experience was so far different. I trained and trained and I did the race and I gutted myself to make it happen and I did it and I was so proud of that. And then I, I heard the story of the year Steve won it. He came in and at the end of the 99, this is a 100-mile mountain bike race, so at the end of the 100-mile mountain bike race, you start lapping, you know, you start kind of going through all these people who started to do the shorter ones. And these are the, the 25 mile and the 35 mile and or 45, whatever. And these people are gutted. There's people like, I, I swear to God, it was like a bomb went off and just like people were just laying all over the place. There were people full cramping. There was just like people pushing bikes up. You know what I mean? Like I passed a hundred people in the last couple of miles that were just, they might still be out there. I have no idea. Like, I, I don't know. But then the story of, like, Steve going out and finding this, this woman on the side of the road, stopping, helping her fix her problem, and then convincing her to keep going and then, like, finish the race. And then he won the race. That's like, amazing. 
he did that in the last 10 minutes of his race that he was like, he obviously trained, he obviously traveled, he obviously made sure all of his stuff was there. He did everything that he needed to do to go win that race. And he also took the time to, to, to talk to that person. And so we had somebody stop at the tent and, and tell us that story. And I was just like, what did I do? Like, I just, I won the race. I set the course record. That's cool. Like, I, I, what did that do? <laughs> like, I don't know. I just walked away with a trophy. I got a Leadville qualifier. But I don't know. Next year, no one's going to come up and say, like, oh, I was, like, stuck in the woods and Hyde stopped and, like, helped me put my chain back on. It's not going to be a story like that. And so I started just thinking about that impact. And I was like, fuck. What do I want out of my career now? <laughs> you know? I don't know. I still don't know. I still don't know where that lies. And I, I, I have a really hard time drawing that line of like, uh, I don't want to win this race. I came here to win this race. I'm not stopping. Um, because that's what I have ingrained in me. Um, but I want to. Uh, but, I, but I don't know when to turn that off and, or how to turn that off. <laughs> I, I guess maybe... And again, you know, I, I can't certainly can't speak for Steve or sort of his close family and friends around him. But it, it kind of sounds like he was a person that was. And this might sound a bit silly, but he was truly himself. He wasn't. Yeah. And, you know, there was no big sponsorship branding you know, there wasn't a branding strategy behind him. This wasn't a gimmick, as you say. He was just going from race to race, being Steve and connecting with people in a truly wonderful way. He was also a great athlete and winning races, as you say. But I think it sounds like the reason he was or has such a strong legacy is not only because he has these sort of endless stories with people around the country and the cycling community but also he seemed to be yeah truly himself and if you started going to races and tried to mimic that that wouldn't be his legacy it, it would be disingenuous and that's what seems to be really interesting about what you're doing is that there's no going back to what you were saying earlier there's not again, a branding strategy behind it. There's not, right, we have to do this at every race. You're kind of working it out as you go and just being, you know, just the three riders, yourself, Joe and Raylin, you're being true to yourselves. Yeah, and I think that if, if what we do, as part of what we do is to empower other people to be more like Steve. You know, I, I love the, like, the hashtag, like, what would Tilford do? Because in any given scenario, that could be any different, <laughs> any kind of different thing. I mean, like, I, I always said before, like, people either have a story of, like, Steve helping them or, like, them wanting to punch Steve. You know, it depends on the scenario. Like, it was, sure. like, you were either in a fist fight with him or, like, he was, like, fixing your bike for you. I'm just not... <laughs> it depends on the scenario. I think if you were racing against him, it was... You probably wanted to fist fight him. Uh, and then if you were, like, not racing against him, he helped you in some way. Um, so allowing some of that, like... Um, variation in personality allowing like a bit of that not telling one side of the story all the time you know just just being able to like give people the agency to have both to have the athletic aspiration and to be okay with like being a jock and like wanting to take it seriously taking your sport seriously and taking your goals seriously etc because i think that can go a really long way i think i can push you in a lot of parts of your life Having athletic aspirations and athletic goals don't exclude being a good person. In fact, I think it can actually help you drill down into being a better person to whatever that may be for you if you kind of use some of those same mindsets and you use some of the same empathy that you give yourself on your athletic side, give yourself that same amount of room and softness and strength 
in your normal life. You know, like some days I have to be a fierce person and some days I have to be a soft person. Some days I want to be this person, but I can't be that person. So I think telling that story of like the individuality of Steve's impact, the day to day, I touched one person at a time shows a different dynamic person. It doesn't show like I I had a drive to make this change in the world as like a someone who does a uh, a large um, philanthropic program, which is totally like it's not that is a way to do it to have a huge reach doing one specific thing and gaining a lot of following and whatever. That's a very effective approach for things. That just wasn't his style and that's okay. And so if, if we kind of go through this, this cycle of our program and what we do is give people the kind of um, okay to let some of that large reach go, because I think we're at this really interesting time where it's very, very easy for an individual to have the pressure to have a very large reach because we have really interesting tools at our disposal. Steve had his blog and he used that because he was like, oh, people ask me about what I'm doing all the time. This is like half communicating on a large scale to the way that I want to do it. And the other half, it's like, it seems to be a little bit therapeutic in that way. And I find that my writing is like that in, in my kind of Instagram reach or whatever, which is kind of the, the one thing that I've drilled in on. Is like, this is partly to disseminate information about what I'm doing because I have a lot of people that care and want to know. And then the other part is like, I actually like writing. I like getting this stuff out. I like sharing my experiences, good or bad. What would Steve have done with that? Would he have tried to grow his Instagram follower and tried to get to like 50,000 and get the little blue check mark? Or would he have just kept going, taking a picture of like somebody's cute dog or, you know, whatever? Like, what would he have, have found to be impactful? Not even impactful, just interesting. Like, what would he have, like, what, what like weird car on the side of the road would he have taken a picture of and been like, that was cool? <laughs> Steve out. You know, whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, a lot of his blog posts are, like, really in-depth, and they're, like, really interesting. And then sometimes they're, like, uh, I drove for 10 hours today. I ran out of gas. Uh, I saw Paul. <laughs> like, that was his blog post. <laughs> <laughs> but he had this, like, uh, he had this just kind of drive to do it, where he was just like, all right, quick and dirty. Let me get this up there. I like doing this. You know, it probably felt really good for him to kind of download that. And for somebody at home, you know, to, to say like, oh, Steve made it. Cool. I check his blog every day. You know what I mean? Uh, great. He, he ran out of gas, but he figured it out. Of course he did. Um, so I don't know. If we give some agency to people to do that, and, and it also kind of gives us agency to do that, I think that we individually continue to kind of build off of that mentality and that just he his life, his... his uh, yeah, his life just kind of continues to give me, at least uh, the more I learn about it, uh, a little bit more kind of autonomy to just do whatever it is that kind of makes me feel good. Um, and to have a little bit more room for the things that make me individual and I don't always have to kind of fit into this bubble and I don't always have to push people to be uh, you know, as like a coach, um, push people to also fit into that bubble. Can I help? Can part of my coaching and part of my outreach be helping somebody find their way as an individual as well? Um, and to just be cool with like whatever comes out of the process. You know, fast forwarding to the sort of setting up of the foundation and joining this team what's it been like for you for someone who you know out of the the riders in the team you're someone who knew Steve closely um and has meant a lot to you what what is it like now sort of being one of the pioneers continuing his legacy and and racing and 
what's it been like sort of developing that team? It's incredibly rewarding um, for two, I mean, for a couple of reasons. It's, you know, Steve was a very, very good friend of mine. Um, He was always a huge advocate for me. Um, There was numerous times where I was, you know, trying to get a job on a team or a contract and Steve would call up the director or send an email or a post on his blog about it, you know, and, and, and be a huge advocate for me and, and tell them about this race I was, he was at, that I was at and how crazy it was or whatever, and give them reasons to hire me <laughs> and, and vouch for me, you know, and, and he had firsthand experience and Steve, people respected him and knew that when Steve said someone was good, that they, you know, it was, it was true. Cause Steve didn't, Steve didn't willy, willy-nilly talk about people you know as writers being good he was he was very um he was very critical when it came to the way writers raced and acted and performed um he was no he was not shy about that about showing sharing his feelings about how someone um either raced or acted on and off the bike so um he was a good judge of character and so i think for us moving forward, we we're trying, you know, that's my biggest thing with this team is to do the same um, and to make sure that we have, we present ourselves in a good character and represent Steve the way he would want to be re- represented himself, you know, and um, that that leads to opportunities for, for young folks to, to, to learn, you know, so, some of the same things um, that Steve taught me, but via the writers, the, the experienced writers on the team now. So we're just, you know, pushing, pushing those things that we learned from him forward and, and continuing that tradition, if you will. Um, I think for me, that's, that's the, 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 the coolest thing about this is it's, it really is continuing, continuing his legacy, um, with those premise principles, um, at play, you know, it's, it's all about that character building and, and opportunity through the sport of cycling. And that's exactly what I got, you know, when I jumped in Steve's minivan and that's what we want to, that's what we want to provide for, for folks moving forward. So long windedly, you know, it's, uh, yeah. it, it, I, I, that's our big goal is to um, teach everyone what Steve taught all of us. So, yeah, Definitely, and and I think um, for from myself, from someone who didn't really know much about Steve, and and has learned um, over the last year or so, and it it's amazing being around a community that he's obviously had such a big impact on, and and that's only a testament to to the man. But your the team has a. Um, you know, the sort of tagline, if you will, of racing for a purpose. And, you know, obviously that's a lot more than, than just a throwaway tagline. And each each rider who I've asked that, it it means something slightly different. And I'd, I'd just like to see and um, hear what racing for a purpose means to you. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of is a perfect segue from the last question. And it's, for me, it's, racing for that for me the number one purpose is to continue his legacy um of that um of his legacy of just how he approached the sport um his mental fortitude and his toughness and all of those skills and lessons that he taught me in the you know in the um in those weeks i raced criteriums with him in in chicago like those those principles are the same ones that i want to see us continue and instill in young people and, and, and people of all ages that didn't know Steve and, and are, are now being introduced to the sport. And secondly, it's about, um, preserving and, and showcasing the support, this, the sport that we all care so much about. Um, and as, as we've seen through COVID, how fragile our sport can be, especially here on the state side with races going away and, riders losing jobs and, and opportunity just because there aren't racing and sponsorships go away because 
um, of all, a whole bunch of reasons, but I think that's my second reason, you know, biggest point for racing for a purpose. That's what it means to me is preserve, preserving and showcasing our sport in a, in a really good way that creates opportunity and teaches folks the history and the proper, you know, the, the, the proper way of doing, doing things with, you know, being, being uh, personable, taking care of others, caring out about others, teaching them, um, providing opportunity and support and all of those things that go along with racing a bicycle, not just going, you know, um, uh, I don't know what I was going to say there, but it's, it's, it's all those things that go into, uh, racing a bike and, and doing it as a, um, as a whole community, right. when we show up to a, a cyclocross race, um, or any bike race, it's, it, it's a whole community there. Um, and we all like to do the same thing and we all like the same things. Um, and we're all there doing the same thing. So, um, being able to support each other and, and do it in a positive manner. That's, that's what racing for the purpose of, racing for a purpose means to me. So it almost sounds like he really did put, uh, the sort of mental health of an athlete first. And even if he wasn't consciously, uh, constructing those ideas at the time, I feel like he would have a lot to say about the conversation that's happening more in the world of sport and, and general life over the last few years. Um, it, do you, you know, does that sound like something that he would, you know, be sort of advocating for now? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think about it all the time about, you know, how active he was on his blog and, and all the different things he talked about and engaged on there and, and had an opinion about. I, I absolutely, he would have had something to say. And, and, and I think he, he would, I know he valued, valued that and, 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 and never discounted like how powerful the mind was and how important it was, um, the mental toughness and, and just the mental space everyone is in as, as an athlete and, and not as an athlete, but, um, yes, no, I think he definitely would have been engaged in, in all of that now, um, and would have been, uh, super involved. So, um, and he definitely, he definitely would have had a blog post or two about it and an opinion or two. (laughs) Sort of to bring it to a close, is there a particular, or, you know, Steve's story, as you will, that, that jumps out to you that, that you wanted to share? I mean, you, you have so many, so it's harder for you. You don't just have the one. The, one of the well-known ones and obvious ones that comes to my mind right now is um, there was the UCI cross race in Kansas City when he was, he was leading the race and uh, slid off the course um, onto this frozen pond and then the ice broke and he fell through it and it was like I don't know five degrees outside it was just ridiculously cold and he obviously was soaking wet after he fell through the ice and he got up and got back on his bike and continued to win the race and finished and got off the bike and Trudy who was in the in the warming tent, you know, before podium and he they they had to like his his gloves were frozen to his hands and they had to warm him up and to follow the gloves out to get him off his hands and his hands just did not work basically. <laughs> um and that just I mean it it's one of those crazy stories where I mean there's very few people in the world that would have continued or been able to win that race. Um man you know, Steve joked that his hands were never, I'm sure they weren't right ever again after that. But, you know, it was just, it, that is a prime example of Steve doing Steve. Like, there was just no question he was getting back on his bike and winning the race, even though he, his hands were literally ice cubes, you know. Um, but, yeah, there's other ones. I mean, just going on bike ride and him talking about how he was, you know, stitching bromont up his dog the night before up late stitching his dog up you know there's just crazy endless stories um and then there's also this the the stories that the van the van story time 
um, you know, if there was ever a time that we should have been recording or <laughs> had a blog or, or not a blog, a podcast was whenever we were in the van driving down the highway to the next bike race. Cause just the, just the download and the history and the stories that Steve could tell and the, and how vivid of story stories he could tell. I mean, the detail and everything was just unreal. Um, it was like he was reliving it every time he did uh, tell the story. So I think that's that's the other thing that everyone has a very fond memory of Steve is his ability to tell stories and, and how good of a uh, storyteller he, that he was. And it was always fascinated me as a kid. Thank you for listening. If you would like to see the portraits from this week's episode, please go to findingspace.cc. For more interviews like this, please subscribe to the Finding Space podcast.